Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Aaron Cooper, head of mid-frequency alpha at Maven Securities. In our conversation, Aaron and I discuss what drove him out of NASA and into quantitative finance, the quant quake, how much alternative data sets are worth and whether data reliability is the key issue, and what he means by market leading. On a more topical note, wishing all my listeners a very happy and prosperous new year. You're the head of the mid-frequency alpha desk at Maven. Let's just ask, what what is that, first of all? I know what high-frequency trading is. What does mid-frequency trading mean? Yeah, so for us, um, you know, mid-frequency is part of what we call the systematic alpha group uh, here at Maven, which is one of four trading groups within the firm. Um, the way we break things down is group and then desk. Uh, within systematic alpha, we have two desks. Um, and, and to be clear, like we, we could on the desk uh, potentially do something that others might consider high frequency. But, but the underlying theme to mid-frequency is model-driven, data-driven, purely systematic trading. Um, so data is core to what we do, infrastructure is core to what we do, and, and algorithm, algorithms, machine learning, uh, data science, uh, et cetera, is, is core to what we do. So you can do high frequency, you can do mid frequency. Do you ever do kind of longer term? Um, well, for us, it, it depends what that means. I'd say on our desk at the moment, the, the longest we aspire to to do is things that uh, strategies with holding periods of, of say, the 10, 10 days or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but conceptually, at some point, we, we might. It, it's really a, sort of a risk reward trade off. So generally, when you get to those longer uh, duration strategies, it's higher, it's harder to have higher sharp. And, you know, if we get to a particular size where it makes sense to have lower sharp, higher capacity stuff, um, that's, that's fine. But in the region, you know, the sort of the horizons that, that we're focused on at the moment, there's plenty of capacity to, to give us a lot of runway. Cool. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. You've had a, you've had a really interesting career doing this for a long time, long, well, I mean, and I don't want to say long before alternative data came on the horizon, but um, but very much kind of early days of alternative data. But so you've been a quantitative analyst for a long time. Um, why don't you just talk me through your career? And actually, if you can, just kind of what kind of data you were using through your career? Because I suspect that's changed yeah. over its over the time. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, my, my background initially was as a uh, I, I studied aerospace engineering mechanics and astrophysics as an undergrad. And, and during that time, I, I was really focused on, on space stuff. I wanted to work for NASA, um, had that as a goal, achieved that goal. Um, and then somewhere in there, I, I, uh, I decided uh, I needed to go to grad school. Uh, I went to MIT. And, and while I was at MIT, I started getting into to solving autonomous, uh, autonomous navigation problems, so, so AI Type, type problems, which which today, you know, a lot of that you, you'd call machine learning. Was there a moment, was there a, I imagine there's moments in people's lives where they, where they're in, they're unhappy in their job and they think, they look up at the night sky and they think, uh, actually, what I want to do is to work for NASA. It sounds like you might've had a, a reverse version of that. <laughs> you were looking at, <laughs> looking up at the night sky and you thought, actually, I don't want to do this at all. I want to go on <laughs> to grad school. Well, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, it, it 
where I ended up was twofold. First of all, um, I, the kind of work I that really interests me was was data and 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 algo type work. So work where you can write computer code to, to either process data or process data in an interesting way to to, to learn something um, and make inference and, and predictions about the future. Um, and so uh, the reality was that uh, I could do that at NASA, but the nature of NASA and government organizations, like they're, they're, they lag behind from a technical perspective in, in this sense, uh, because everything has to be tried and true. Um, and, and so that wasn't, wasn't the space I wanted to be in. Uh, there's some other sort of more mechanical reasons of, of why NASA became less attractive. And ultimately, um, I decided it wasn't about the domain. While the domain's still really interesting, it was much more about about the mathematical perspective, the the data perspective, and 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 building systems around that, and and so finance was in it. Sorry, go ahead. One, no, no, no. One more question on this before yeah. we do get into the finance is: Had you been doing this um, today instead of instead of whatever it was twenty years ago, um, and you'd had the opportunity to work for one of these private space companies, do you think you would have left space? It was it was it the kind of the fast movingness which you were you were seeking, and potentially Elon Musk might have given you that, and you might have might have stayed in it. Yeah, I mean, even at the at that time, it was clear that those were the you know the, the paths to go go on were to stay the route, stay at NASA, um, which really cool domain, a lot of smart people doing cool stuff, but on some respects a bit sleepy. Uh, to try to do some kind of startup thing, either myself or, or yeah, for somebody like an Elon Musk or whoever was doing that kind of stuff at the time, or do something in defense. And the reality is, defense, at least in the states, are doing some of the coolest work out there. Um, and none of those, uh, yeah. So to answer your question, would it be maybe, maybe not? Because the reality is, but I think probably in finance, we still have to evolve faster and move faster yeah. um, than say uh, the, the the space exploration side but but perhaps perhaps i mean they, they definitely are doing some cool stuff and 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 you know it would be an exciting place to work i'm sure okay let's get back down to earth um and so you went into uh, so you so finance was the fast moving it was the exciting place and so you you got into being a being a quantit event monitor yeah so i went to work for this shop event monitor where they did um they had a, a software hardware platform because at the time um you, you know you didn't have machines that had the the memory or 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 the speed and the CPU and the disk that we have today, and so you needed a specialized solution to do high frequency market analysis. So, so to to really do a good job at 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 uh, building models off tick data, um, and so I was a quant at a basically a software slash hardware firm, uh, this startup, and, and so I learned a lot there about how do you do software development. What's what does that pipeline look like? What are the standards? Um, but I was really doing quant research and data and really data work. I mean, I spent a lot of time just digging through tick data uh, and, and figuring out how to parse that data properly. And then you were at you were at um, twenty one hundred Capital Group uh, when the when the quant quake happened. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you just I've I've had that passingly mentioned before. But I've never actually dug into it. Like, what, what, what did it look like? What did it feel like? What was it like from the inside of, of being in a in a in a quantitative trading capacity at that point? Yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. I mean, it, uh, the the folks that I 
well, first of all, it was it was a great place for me to be at that time of my career because it was also a startup and we were doing a lot of things. So uh, we were man- building a multi-strat and a risk platform around that. So I got to learn a lot about risk modeling and, and building a risk system um, and, and learning about, you know, it was a multi-asset class thing. So we had investments in other hedge funds, uh, but we had position level data. Uh, I also then had the experience of being able to build my own, uh, I mean, with a few other individuals, but, but I did a big chunk of the quant work um, of building our own uh, bottoms up equity strategy. Now, as it relates, and, th- and then also we owned a CTA business, and so I had, I had the experience building futures models. Now, uh, what that also meant is we, we had the unlucky fortune of launching that strategy that I built um, with a few other individuals uh, in July of 2007, which is about the worst timing you could have had in the prior you know, in the surrounding five or 10 years. So yeah. um, what was it like? Well, I learned a lot there too, because the people I worked for were very, I think they were very good systematic investors. And so, you know, we launched and things were okay. And they very quickly kind of went off the rails performance wise for a period. And, um, and, and, you know, you saw 20 standard deviation moves at the, at the peak. Um, but we, you know, we continued to do thorough analysis and, and so it was really about learning, learning about that, like when you have these situations and the end of the day as an investor, whether you're a systematic investor or or not, you know, when you have these situations, inevitably you have to check your assumptions and you have to kind of go back and dig and and do that sort of proctological, proctological exam on the thing you built. And so that's exactly what we did. And and at the end, we the, the overall performance for us wasn't that bad because at the worst, at the point of maximum pain, uh, we refocused our uh, our our portfolio on the things that were actually hurting us most, but we, but then we, um, and so we recovered a lot. On the other hand, one of the things I also learned and it kind of led me to my next role was I saw huge dislocations that were not explainable by anything fundamental that at the time my systematic process wasn't able to take advantage of. And so I'd say I learned two things from that. One is you have to build more complex algorithms and you constantly have to push on that front. You have to push on how fast you sample data and you have to, and, and then there's also a space in a systematic process perhaps for a human in the loop in, in a, in a systematic way. Can you very briefly, I've, I just haven't had the, the story on this, on this podcast. Just tell me very briefly what the quantquake quantquake was and just what it looked like well what, what you saw so at the time what a lot of people were doing was and this, and this is kind of what i'd refer to now as as sort of old school quant is we bet on things that um on things that i i'd kind of consider today to be risk factors so things like value momentum quality um you know a few other things as well. And, and mechanically what was going on is somebody at some point that was massively leveraged started unwinding. And then you just got a domino effect where different people felt different pain and there was just too much crowdedness in that trade. And so then you moved into, into Marshall Waste. It's obviously a, a very big name um, in the space. I, what, what kind of work were you doing there? As I, as I uh, alluded to earlier, the, the thing, you know, I, I was interviewing at the time. So at the time, I mean, in part because of that and in part for a few other reasons, for me to stay with that organization, I would have had to go to Chicago and, and sort of focus on futures. And I was still really into equities. Um, and so I interviewed with a number of places and, and, and Marshall Waste really drew my attention in part because of this idea that 
they had this systematic model with a human in the loop and, and, you know, what now we call alpha capture. And so, um, I went there and, you know, the, what I found was that there was, you know, the, the, some of the stuff they did, were doing was really interesting and novel. On the other hand, um, they hadn't yet been exposed to a lot of the tools, uh, that, that, um, that I had learned to use and develop, um, involving, uh, generating s- single stock signals from data basically. Um, they had a, a bit of a different approach. And so single stock, single stock signals. So, uh, so that's the difference between betting on an entire, you know, universe, uh, versus actually predicting what each single stock will do. So rather than saying, I think, I don't know, I'll think the S will P will go up, S and P will go up. It's saying I can, I can make predictions on each one of the stocks within S and P. Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, what they were doing is they were betting on people based on a combination of quantitative and and qualitative measures. Um, So they had a methodology for saying, okay, this contributor to our system is is good or not. And then how does that uh, become a a trade? Um, And so what I'm saying, what what I'm referring to is like, and and, and to kind of get back to where we started uh, when I got there was, well, it maybe what we can do is we can use some of these statistical models that one might use to, to model stocks to model the human being. And then that information can be mapped back to uh, the stock level. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what I'm referring to is at the end of the day, you end up with uh, either a score or a prediction per stock of how much you think it's going to go up or down over some future period of time. Um, and so that was a, so that was, so you were, you were arriving with a, with a new idea for, uh, for, for Marshall Ace. I'm sure they were, they were very pleased to have you. What kind of, um, what kind of data were you, were you, um, were you seeing was coming across your desk at that point? Yeah. I mean, this was really, I mean, I mean, at the start, uh, you know, there was an existing process and it was nice. Um, but the data we were processing is the sort of their own proprietary alpha capture data. Um, and, and really for me, this was the introduction to what, what I would call alt data. So, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how you or your audience classifies alt data, but for me, alt data is really anything that isn't, um, fundamental data and isn't, uh, price volume type data, uh, or open interest type data. So it, what, what we came to, and, and I think at Marshall Waste, we were really one of the first movers in a large way in all data. And we didn't really think of it in these terms, but, but I think that's the reality. And uh, because once you start modeling a human being and you take that information to then model stocks, um, it's not, you, you, you look around, you go, Oh, well, what else kind of smells and tastes like this? Oh, well, maybe credit card data, maybe, you know, some other transaction data or some other data we can pull from whatever source. Um, and well, why can't we do the same thing there? And and that's really where we started. And then, you know, once you had this mindset and you developed the tools, uh, to do this analysis, kind of the world was, was wide open. And you left Marshall Waste in, in kind of December, 2014, but that, even that feels fairly early actually for, 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 for some of the alternative data that's, that's familiar today. Um, but so credit card data was, was available on the market and you were, you were, um, you, so you mentioned that specifically, were there any kind of other kinds of data that you began to, um, you began to wheel? Were you buying it? Were you, were you scraping it yourself? How, how, how are you coming across it? Um, I mean, I don't think Marsh Ways would be happy if I talked about the specific data sets, but it's sort of generically, I think one of the very interesting things about Marshall Ways that's that, that, uh, set it apart and continues to, to probably set it apart is, um, 
again, coming out of this experience from the alpha capture data where, again, Marshall Waste is very different in that they were procuring their own data. They were they were curating their own data. They weren't going to a third party for it. And that was really a core of the firm's DNA. And, and that continued on all their data sets. So core and, and so both on the technological side and on the and on the on the on the quant research and portfolio management side, we developed the skill set to um, to go out and just pull arbitrary data, and so that that continued there, and and I'm sure it continues uh, to this day. So we of course did buy data from um, third party providers, but you know that was more like a, a last you know the last ditch effort if if you couldn't go out and get it yourself. Why don't we then? Why don't we carry on through the through the career, and then we can talk more broadly about your experience with uh, alternative data, kind of across the board. So you know, across all of your all of your experience with your various employers, and so not no single one can get um, offended or upset. Sure. Um, so um, so then so moving from Marshall Waste onto uh, onto Cubist. Yeah, so I went to Cubist, and um, you know, at that point in my career, I kind of decided. I'd wanted to build my own desk, my own team, my own IP. Um, and so I went to Cubis and and was very fortunate to yeah to be able to have a seat there and 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 start building. Um, you know, there was a number of different facets to it. Certainly, there was an alpha capture facet and sort of reinventing how uh, how we did that um, based on my my experience. Um, but also, you know, because at that point in my career, I'd sort of I'd, I'd spread my wings a fair bit and was was looking to trade any and all, all data that I could find and and it was a nice nice platform for that um, you know there, there was sort of pros and cons and, and challenges and, and advantages but at the end of the day it was a great place to be fantastic and then this opportunity at, at Maven came up um, which was moving to moving to London which uh, yeah that, that um, yeah that's a uh, you didn't come for the weather <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm from Minnesota, which is a very cold state. So, so maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Um, but something else at, at Maven, I suspect, attracted you. Yeah, I mean, Maven is is really an amazing place, and um, it's unique in the in the marketplace. So it's a you know we are we're a prop trading firm, uh, we're employee owned, and and so like the DNA of the firm is is super unique. Where um, you know, to some extent, everybody's invested in what other people are doing, even though. You know, on a day-to-day basis, people are primarily focused on on their own trade, um, and so initially, when I came, the idea was to it was actually not to stay in London. It was to to get my strategies up and running here, and then go back to to New York and help help Maven expand there and help with that business. And and ultimately, um, yeah, the opportunity presented itself where. Uh, when you when you say that, just to dig into that quickly, get yeah. your strategies up and running here, and then kind of leave them going. Once you've got something up and running, it just it doesn't require much much overseeing. Is that right? You can you can just kind of leave it and and just poke your nose in from afar every now and then. Is it is it uh, you know how uh, can you unpack that statement a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the intent is for strategies to be exactly as you described, fully systematized. Every, everything's automated. We've done a fairly good job of that. We continue to, you know, I think in this business, um, you know, kind of if you're satisfied, you're, 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 you're sort of dead in the water. And so we're never satisfied. We're always trying to improve things. Uh, but yeah, for, for the most part, that's right. You just kind of, you, you turn it on, you let it run. And, and obviously you, def- you always do analysis and, and you have reports, you, you know, 
the, your system sending you reports about what's going on, uh, what's it trading, and, and, and there's certainly oversight. And so if something were to go wrong, there is a human in the loop there to, to pull the plug. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately, um, yeah, you, you automate everything from, you know, stock loan restrictions, execution, et cetera, and all, all this sort of nitty gritty details, back office reconciliation, et cetera. Yeah. So you're creating a strategy and then setting it off and, and then you go off, um, and you start working on the next one, um, because you've got to always be, be innovating and then the strategy that you just set off, you're, you're kind of poking, you're going and, and making sure it's okay. And obviously if anything goes horribly wrong, then there's a warning and, and et cetera. But um, how long would it, do they have, how do they have different lengths of lives in terms of, um, you know, how long, how long would a strategy tend to tend to live and, and continue being useful before it, before it's obsolete. And then if it, and, it, and then it stops making money, then you just, you shut it down and and um but by then you've created others is that I, am i picturing it correctly well i'd say the, the the paradigm that that we're shooting for here and and really it goes through every every pm on my desk every strategy and and where we want to go uh, as we you know build out and develop our our platform even further and that is uh, a strategy is a living breathing thing uh from the perspective that it's constantly evolving and so um the way I think, you know, I can explain sort of the way I think of mid-frequency strategy in, in a few minutes, and that is, um, you have you have data, raw data on one side. You're ingesting that raw data. That raw data gets mapped into uh, some space that makes sense to you. So you're mapping information to 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 securities of some sort. Um, now, as part of that information, you have price and volume, and so on one hand, you, you're probably generating some some risk model. Uh, I have a preference for statistical risk models, but other people may have fundamental ones. And then another path is um, those, 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 those features, those pieces of data get combined in different ways under, under some modeling framework. Um, and on, on underpinning that modeling framework is, is, is some sort of thesis. Um, and, and then those, those, the, those data components are combined into alphas, um, which are sort of, you can think of those as actual strategies in a way. They're, they're each their own sort of prediction away. And ultimately that information, those alphas get combined and some, some multivariate model to, to make predictions. And, and, and then at the end, that sort of risk, your, your notion of risk or risk model along with your predictions come together in some sort of uh, trading algorithm or, or portfolio construction algorithm. And you get a new, and you get a new piece of data comes across your, comes across your radar and, and you, you like it, you've tested it, you've, 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 you've found that it's, it's got value. So then you, you just, try and in integrate it into your existing strategies or are you are you going to build an entirely new strategy off the back of it no in general that, that's not the, the, the it, it, in general the approach is is the the one where we would uh, ingest data and see uh, what the alpha content is as we measure it for different kinds of strategies um, so I don't know if you were you had some sort of model telling you about oil inventories well maybe maybe you would ingest that and use that for a, a macro model or a, a model that's trading uh, futures on those. But you also may try to understand the sensitivity uh, of that or, or of equities um, to that and, and, and trade it there as well. And you're, you're basically, you're, you're, you're running the back test and you're seeing if I had included this data, then mm. I would have got a better performance. And so, or I would have got a worse performance. And so, um, you have basically you've tested it out and you've and you think yes i would have got a better performance so i'm gonna i'm gonna add this data 
um, for the going forwards. And then it's all part of the pile. And now I'm going to, you know, go off and, and think of other strategies and look for other data as well. And so it's an ongoing beast that you're feeding data and, and new ideas of strategy to um, on an ongoing basis. Or are there lots of these going on? No, that's that's absolutely right. And so really the 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 trick is you build that platform um, where one, you can ingest data in a, in a quick way. You can measure it. Now, there's a whole science around, um, you know, it's it, generally speaking, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, um, I got this data and it looks good over this period. Therefore, I trade it like you know, we, we need some we need to, to onboard some 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 nice statistical tricks and some some ML principles to say, like, you know, test train validation and things of this nature, which are really important. Otherwise, we open ourselves up to some 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 bias. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, taking into consideration that, well, I look at this and, the, uh, you know, there's a few considerations with data. One is, OK, was this data actually available in the marketplace? So there's data sets out there today that, you know, were definitely not available three, four years ago, but perhaps the provider gives me history. And so if I base my decision making 100 percent on the period when that history, when that data wasn't available, I'll probably end up in an incorrect spot. Um, and so there's, there's considerations like that also, you know, to the extent, um, you know, data providers, you know, some, some, there's some earnings estimates data where, you know, there are versions that are not what we call point in time. So, you know, people may go back and change history, um, and, and overwrite it. Um, and then also there's data sets that are sort of more curated where perhaps, um, there's some modeling aspect of the data you're buying and, and inherent in that could be some look at bias. Uh, so, so you have to always defend against these sort of things. And you've also uh, got to consider, so what about costs? So we've got um, obviously the basic cost of, uh, also you've got the basic cost of buying a data set. You've got the cost of, the cost of ingesting it either in terms of, you know, time, but also manpower and, and whatever costs there are. Do you, before, in, in order to decide whether it's worth your while to bring this data set into your strategy, do you uh, develop a big number, which is your cost, and then you see how much upside there would be if you if you ran it in your strategy? And if the upside is higher than the cost, then you then you pull the trigger. And if not, then you don't type thing. Um, so, so the way I would think about it is you need to make some multiple, it, it, like, okay, let's say we do this analysis and based on what we've seen historically and we've defended against all these sort of biases and, and kind of issues we just described. Uh, and out of that, we say we think we can make X number of basis points above and beyond what um, what, what we otherwise would have generated. Um, and, and also like maybe, you know, maybe we have some other measures we're concerned with, some maybe information ratio or, or some other sort of risk adjusted measure, um, perhaps. Um, and and then after that, we would say, OK, from a financial perspective, we need to be able to we need to feel like we can make some multiple above the cost. Um, and so one of the things that actually gets to, which is a which it was a bit of a challenge, is, is that the reality is if you're, you know, massive quant firm X, Y, Z, um, and, and you have more capital, you know, your, 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 your footprint is in the tens of billions of, of dollars. Mm. Um, obviously the, the hurdle rate is a lot lower versus, uh, you know, prop shop where, where, you know, we don't have that kind of footprint. Um, and so there is a, there is a skew to the playing field in that, um, the biggest players can afford, you know, 
pretty much any data set and it can make economic sense. Whereas for us, um, there's data sets that won't make economic sense, even though we know that we can make some money on them. You alluded to a multiple of the cost that you would like to make back. Is that, uh, does it tend to be the same multiple and is it proprietary information or can you give a kind of ballpark for what that multiple might be? Uh, five times. That's sort of what I think about. Yeah. Um, I guess it's just a number that I've always come back to. So, Aaron, what do you like in a data set? What do you look for when you go out? How do you go about choosing a data set to, to bring into your model? I mean, historically, my experience is my favorite data sets, the most profitable ones, are the ones nobody talks about or the ones that we curate ourselves. Um, so, you know, the, the, the known example of curation that everybody talks about is Alpha Capture. And, you know, there's a few pe- few few big shops out there um, that do it well in terms of curating their own data. Like Two Sigma does a really nice job. Obviously, Martian Waste is, is sort of gold standard. Um, but there's a few other. I think Citadel probably does a nice job. Uh, you know, but then and then there's the third party providers that the Tims of the world. Um, so, so that that's one. But there's a load of kinds of data that one could conceive and, and curate oneself. Um, and then you know, in terms of data you buy off the shelf, you know, I, I will look at any data, uh, to be clear. And, and part of our work and our pipeline is building the kit so that, you know, we can quickly ingest and test any data. Um, and that's obviously, that's a constant work in progress. But, um, but the ones that I buy that I like the most are the ones that nobody talks about. So, yeah. yeah, so you don't want to, yeah. But do you find, and do you find that there's a shelf life with that as well in terms of, you know, things which are great and unknown swiftly become known. <laughs> so you need to keep, you need to get it early and then it may go, may go kind of stale um, after six months a year or something like that. Is, is there that or can you, are you able to get hold of a thing which can people continue to not talk about for a, for a extended period of time and you can continue making money off it? Uh, I guess I've seen both. Um, I've seen both. And at the end of the day, no matter what, uh, if, if there's some money to be made, eventually somebody starts figuring it out and, and you'll start to see degradation. At the same time, it, it can be tricky to separate out uh, alpha degradation versus cyclicality. Um, so, you know, there's plenty of plenty of examples I can think of where, you know, alphas have gone through, you know, cyclical periods. Certainly what you see as more people start to trade them is you know, initially you start to see alpha degradation and then, you know, if it does come back, it probably comes back with some additional volatility around it. Do you find alternative data providers, and I'm talking about the ones that you buy, um, Mm. do you find that the providers themselves tend to know the value that's in that that is it within their data? Or do you find that, you know, they think they're selling data, they don't know what's in it and you, and do, do you let them know? how what value is in their data if you do find it it very valuable what how what how what do you think their under their knowledge is like i think there's cases where they do um and then there's a lot of cases where they have no idea it's like you know i've been to a lot of these alt data conferences and they're really nice and i enjoy uh you know meeting data providers and having a chat um and and really you know i love the work i do and, and love sort of digging into it um but uh, a lot of times people just come up with a number because somebody told them that's what they think they could get for it um, without a lot of data behind that. And is it in a way, is it better when an, uh, when a provider isn't fully aware of all the value in their data? Because then 
you've got more chance of finding a thing that no one else will find. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I mean, that's, that's probably the case. Uh, I think there's a lot of risk in piling into um, data sets that everybody's talking about, you know, certainly. And, and, and there's this other element too, where, you know, there's this sort of uh, what people call quantum mental, which can mean different things to different people, but, but like uh, just for, just for the sake of, of this conversation, let's call that sort of fundamental folks dabbling in, in, in data, alt data, data science. And I think, you know, from conversations I've had, you've definitely seen cases where uh, that's led to certain data sets causing massive uh, moves in stocks that kind of like uh, causes a bit of, um, you know, snowball effect and then, then can end a bit badly. Yeah, there's a kind of... Um, a quant quake aftershock in a way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and do you, so, and um, just on the data sets a bit more, are there any any attributes which are must-haves? For example, a length of history or a breadth of, a breadth of focus or anything like that, which are requirements for you to look at them? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably a bit looser on these than, than others. It really depends on the data set. Um, you know, in general, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, you can you can show mathematically that like the 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 IR of something is proportional to sort of the square root of breadth and the and then average signal strength. It's like the called the fundamental law of active management, and and it certainly applies here. So, what does it actually mean? Well, what it means is like, you know, if you have a low breadth signal, it has to be really strong to be interesting, um, and and if you have a High breadth signal can be a bit weaker and still be interesting. Um, r- roughly for me, um, and, and then there's sorry, then there's another element which those which kind of relates to this, and that's sampling frequency. So um, you can kind of think of that a bit like the n in in, the, in this formulation. So yeah, it really has to do with like you know how often is data updated uh, in, in in a meaningful way? Uh, what's the breadth, and then what's the signal strength? For me, I've, you know, I've had signals, I've had data sets that I've traded that maybe, you know, you can only get like 50 signals a day. Um, and then I've had other ones that, you know, don't work unless you're several, several hundred signals a day. So it really depends. But, but in general, you know, again, depending on update frequency, um, you know, for something that's more daily in nature, less than three years can be tricky uh, in terms of doing a proper analysis. Uh, something that updates many times intraday, well, you can can get away with a shorter history. How important is reliability in terms of um, reliability of supply or reliability that the data provider will, you know, turn it up and it won't be and it will be clean and and all mm. these other things? Um, how important is that, and how can you choose? Uh, how do you how can you protect against that? You know, how can you be sure? I guess there's a few different angles to this. So to some extent, some of the most interesting data can be quite dirty and, and requires a fair bit of effort. Um, you know, like think of news data, text data, if you're going to kind of go that route yourself. Um, at the same time, you know, if it's a more mundane data set, if, you know, then, then it's more about reliability. So it, it really depends on how special it is. So if it's less special and, and you know, you've got multiple providers that can provide you effectively the same thing, then that's obviously much more important. 
Um, so, so think of like, let's just take risk models, for example. If, if I was buying risk model data from somebody, and I realize this isn't really alt data, um, but if I was buying risk model data from somebody, and there's probably a lot of, there's a few different providers that provide something that's similar. Um, you know, if one was reliable and, and, and I was at a nice job and had good data quality, well, I'd go with the, the one that, you know, the one that is uh, mm. <clears throat> more, more reliable. How, how exposed are you in terms of if, uh, you have built a strategy using mm. an alternative data source and then one day the data arrives and there's a glitch and it's, you know, the number it arrives 10 times bigger than it's meant to because someone's mm. hit a fat finger or something like, is there a risk from your perspective that that gets munched up by your strategy and trades are made, which, which then, you know, is there, is there, is there that kind of operational risk or, or are you protected against that? Well, I think the thing as it's funny, I, well, I think on one of your podcasts, I heard some conversation around the subject and yes, the thing that, oh, that, wow. that, that strikes me as funny about this conversation is like, there's no such thing as clean data in our space. Like some of the dirtiest data in a way is just market data. So like pure, like, at the core, every data set is error, has errors. Like there just isn't such a thing as clean data. Um, so, you know, think of literally tick, tick data. There's always errors in this data. Um, fundamental data. I mean, companies are restating stuff all the time. There's, there's constantly errors in the data. Even the data that you buy that's supposed to be like kind of clean daily data. There's, con there's you know, regularly errors in this data. So at the end of the day, um, I don't really differentiate because to build a proper systematic system, you have to handle these cases no matter what. Fantastic. I think Aaron, I hope Avi's listening and, um, and we'll have to get you both back to, uh, to, to duel it out on this topic. Cause it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting one and, and you obviously both, both, uh, experienced and knowledgeable about it, but, um, but fantastic. Um, Okay, and so why don't we talk a little bit more about Maven itself? What 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 are you what are you up to at Maven? What's the what's the what's the story there? Yeah, so you know, Maven, as as I said earlier, is a, it's a super interesting place to be. It's this employee owned prop trading firm, and and we really try to take the best of all possible worlds, where um, it's it's both very a collaborative environment where we're trying to build shared infrastructure that is truly market leading from the execution stack to the data ingestion stack and everything in between where, but at the same time providing sort of, um, very much, uh, direct drive, uh, sort of attribution from a PL perspective and, and, and also like from an idea and, and, and idea formulation and, and creation perspective. And so, um, off the back of that, you know, what that's become as we've formed the systematic alpha group and these two Dasval alpha and, and mid frequency alpha ha has really been building a, a world class team. Um, so, you know, I guess some of our, you know, again, part of the interesting sort of culture here is, is we have this mantra of, of we want to be market leading everything that we do. And um, what that's also meant is we keep the bar incredibly high. Uh, we have very rigorous processes when we hire, and 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 sort of out of that, um, we've led. You know, we've built this team of going from a few people a few years back to uh, a systematic alpha group. That's I, I don't know the exact numbers, but something on the order of forty individuals and growing. Um, mm -hmm. We've had to you know run a gauntlet of 
a pretty significant test to to get into the get into the room. How do you Aaron? How do you measure being market leading in every in every space? Is it just about returns, or are there other measures that you can that you're kind of striving to hit? Yeah, so it's I mean it's it's a good question. So you know we very much believe in in measurable outcomes. Um, so so returns is certainly a core element of of measuring market leading. But then having a you know we hire people that have had a track record of success, and, and we always try to understand um, where the market le- where 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 our com- competition or the folks that are having success of of what they've done and where they're headed, and measuring ourselves against that in other ways. So examples would be you know what's our computational infrastructure look like? What's our knowledge base in in machine learning and deep learning and, and NLP? Um, what what do we uh, you know, where are we going from a data ingestion perspective and, and execution stack perspective? So we, we try to be as measurable as possible. And, and, and obviously at the, at the top of that list is, is returns, but it's not solely the thing that we would measure uh, on this respect. Okay. And out of this, out of this conversation, um, obviously there's many ways that it can be, it can be useful. There's, there's, um, spreading the glory of, of Maven for all to see. Um, and there's, but there's also, um, that someone might, f- you might receive more data sets potentially um, yeah. to directly. And there's also that um, Maven get more, might get more CVs through the door of, of, sure. uh, of interested, interested applicants. Uh, what, what do you think is the, you know, what, 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 what's, what's the hope for all of it? Yeah, I think all of it. So, so CVs, uh, data, and what was your other one? The glory of Maven. Glory of Maven. I mean, to be honest, we're not, <laughs> Maven's not, uh, two folks on the glory of Maven. Um, I'd say we're, we, we have this lofty goal, but I think as a place, it tends to be a, a, a place of humble individuals. So I think it's much more about the, uh, about the ensuring that we continue to ingest the, you know, bring in more talented people in part, just because it's fun, like working with super people, super talented individuals just makes a lot, it makes it a fun place to be. Um, and obviously that's, you know, our belief is that's going to lead to, to better outcomes. Um, but then also, yeah, I mean, certainly to get get more people knowing who we are and and flagging us on the products they're selling from a data or infrastructure perspective is a is a nice outcome as well. And Tareg, your data um, sourcer, uh, data procurement and licensing manager, would be also very interested in receiving any any uh, alternative data sets as well to um, to, to peruse. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. Um, really interesting to to just talk through the talk through the day to day, the role, understand your history, and 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 talk through it all, and understand Maven a little bit better. So, um, really, I feel I feel privileged to have to have had the chance, and um, and thanks so much for for taking the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking again in the future. Thank you so much, Mark. I, I appreciate it, and hope to speak again. Fantastic.